0: You're listening to audio from 7 Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. There's an early apocryphal work known as the Acts of First Peter, the Apocrypha is a set of writings that didn't make the cut into the canon of Scripture. And in the Acts of Peter, it, it, it tells the story of how the Apostle Peter was martyred by inverted crucifixion. That is, being crucified upside down. And as he approaches this, the, the place of execution, Peter gives a final speech and it concludes, and he concludes with these words. But it is time for you, Peter, to surrender your body to those who are taking it. Take it then, Use you whose duty it is. I request, I request you, therefore, executioners, to crucify me head downwards in this way and no other. The early church fathers, Tertullian and Origen and St. Jerome, all held to this same understanding of history. It was memorialized by Michelangelo, painted in stone at the Capella Paulina in the Vatican Palace. And historically, here's what we're certain about. We know that Peter was martyred and killed and executed in Rome, and we're very certain it was by crucifixion. And there's at least good historical evidence that it was, in fact, by inverted crucifixion. So Peter was crucified upside down and regardless of if it was upside down or right side up he was faithful to the end after a career as a simple fisherman he came to know love and follow jesus on the sea of galilee he was called to follow him and he became one of jesus's first disciples he walked with jesus he learned from jesus He was also one of the three who was invited in to this this inner circle where Jesus invited him up on the Mount of Transfiguration where uh, the the veil of his flesh was pulled back and and, and Peter was able to see the full glory of the Son of God. He boldly told Jesus he would never forsake him only to deny him three times. And after his death and resurrection, Jesus himself restored Peter by his grace and told him, basically, spend the rest of your life demonstrating that love I know you have for me by feeding my sheep. It was Peter who preached the first Christian sermon and he did, in fact, live the rest of his days dedicated to growing the church and seeing it established as it spread like wildfire throughout the Roman Empire. And in the end, he was crucified by inverted crucifixion. Because of his faith and devotion to the mission of God, he was put to death. Today, we get to read the final words of his first letter. And as he brings his letter to a close, he writes this in verse 12. By Silvanus, meaning that's who wrote this letter, Peter's dictating it, tells us he's a faithful brother He says, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Peter tells us this is the true grace of God. So what is the true grace of God? Well, in one sense, it's the whole letter. He's saying everything I've written, as you understand it, as you come to uh, apply it in your life, it is the true grace of God. And then these last few verses of chapter 5... He kind of summarizes the whole thing. So if you haven't been with us over the last nine weeks, it's okay. I'm going to summarize everything that Peter's talked about. His last chapter gives us a summary of the entire message of the letter. That for elect exiles, for these chosen sojourners, the way up is actually the way down. We go up by going down. See, there's coming a day when we will receive our future inheritance... There's coming a day when we will be exalted and we will share in the glory of Jesus. But, Peter tells us, that day of glory, that promised day to come, only comes after a season of present day suffering. So this is just one of those truths. As a Christian, you have got to get right. You have got to get it deep down into your heart. It's got to be the steel in your back. That suffering precedes glory. It's the way of the cross. It was true of Jesus. It was true of Peter. And Peter's saying, it will be true of you. That's why earlier in the letter he said, Don't think it strange, my brothers and sisters, when you endure trials of various kinds. It's been the driving theme of this whole letter. Just remember how Peter began the letter as he first addressed the readers as elect exiles, as chosen sojourners. The very words themselves seem um, oxymoronic. It seems like a a paradox. How could I be chosen by God and yet exiled? How how, how could I be elected by God and yet be a sojourner, a, a person without a home? And then at chapter 1, verses 3 through 6, we see Peter tells us we have an incredible, imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance that's being safeguarded by the very omnipotent power of God himself. And yet, he tells us right after that, that that inheritance is inextricably linked to the experience of being grieved by various trials. You have an incredible, imperishable, unfading inheritance But right now, you're going to be grieved by various trials. They're both true at the same time. Chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. He tells us who we are. Listen to this incredible identity. We are a chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, a people for his own possession. We are proclaimers of Christ's excellencies. We've been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are marked not by wrath, but by mercy, and yet at the same time, he tells us you're also sojourners and exiles who must endure life in a world that is not their own. Later in that same chapter, we see Jesus himself, who's the truly only innocent sufferer. He committed no sin. He bore our sins in his body on the tree so that by his wounds we would be healed. It was, suffering was true for Jesus. It will be true for you. That's Peter's point. In chapter 3, Peter says it's better... To suffer for doing God's will than to suffer for doing evil. And so that the very way that we suffer becomes a powerful witness to the goodness, truth, and beauty of the gospel. Chapter 4, Peter tells us we should expect suffering. Don't think it strange. And and it's not simply because we live in a sin-soaked world, though we do. So you can just expect in a world that is uh, bent on entropy, that is bent on coming undone, in a world like that, you will experience suffering. Yes, that's true, but he also goes further than that. He says, expect suffering, not simply because we live in a sin-soaked world, but because even suffering, all of it, falls under the dominion of God's sovereign and purposeful will. So it's not merely that, it's happening And God is going, oh no, I gotta do something about it. Peter says it's actually a part of God's will. In fact, nothing happens apart from God's will. That's what it means to be sovereign. Anything less than that, and you're not actually sovereign anymore. And he says our response to that is to rejoice, knowing that God is in control. That's actually really good news. So no suffering is outside of his control. And we're to rejoice because in our suffering, we're bonded to Jesus because he himself suffered. It's like when you go through something hard with somebody, you're bonded to them in a unique kind of way. And and Peter says, you should rejoice because as you suffer, you're bonded to Jesus in that same way. And the very presence of God rests on us in the day of our suffering. And so he says, entrust yourself. That means just give yourself fully to your creator. And Peter says, all of this, Is the true grace of God. That our present day sufferings will at the proper time give way to glory. And the beauty of it is this. The very nature of suffering. Which is bent on destroying you. Like suffering by its nature is destructive. And Peter is saying it will be redeemed. So every evil intention, every entropic force, every effort of suffering to destroy you because it's in the hands of a sovereign God will actually be flipped, turned upside down on its head and be used by God for your restoration, redemption, and recreation. In other words, suffering becomes a vehicle for God's redemptive purposes. And Peter says that is the true grace of God. Amen. See, our suffering doesn't lead to our destruction, but to our redemption. It'll form and shape your character. It'll bond you to Jesus like nothing else will. It'll draw the Lord's presence nearer to you. And Peter is saying the true grace of God teaches us that the way down is the way up. That those who bear the cross will one day bear the crown. And Peter says, this is the true grace of God. And then he says, stand firm in it and these last verses in first peter 5 tell us how we can stand in that true grace of god three points this morning as we finish up the chapter in the book in verses six to seven if we're going to stand firm in the true grace of god he calls us to embrace a humble reliance if you're taking notes that's our first point embrace a humble reliance And then in verses 8 to 9, he's going to say we are called to pursue a vigilant resistance. Embrace a humble reliance, but also pursue a vigilant resistance. And then third, in verses 10 to 11, we are called to trust in a promised restoration. Let's get going here in verse 6 to see how we can embody a humble reliance. Verse 6, Peter says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now these two verses give us a command that's coupled with an encouragement. He's going to tell us something to do and then he's going to give us a an encouragement to do it. So first the command, what does he say? He says humble yourselves. Now we've got to get nerdy here for a second because this command humble yourself in the Greek is written as a passive imperative. Now That may not sound impressive to you, but it's quite rare in the New Testament to use a passive imperative. Because typically, imperatives are given in the active voice, right? He's saying, this is something you need to do. So it's an active voice. But here it's a command, but it's a command that you receive. It's it's a passive command. It's something that you receive. See, normally, commands are given in the active voice because there's something you're supposed to do, something you're supposed to put in action. But with the passive imperative, it's, it's different. The idea is... You're, you're supposed to receive and accept something. So Peter says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. In other words, this mighty hand of God is, is poetic for him to say, God is in control and you are not. He's the one with the mighty hand, not you. So what are we supposed to accept? Well, it's probably one of the hardest truths to receive. That we are not in control. Now, I know we're probably not arrogant enough to, to say, no, 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 I am in control. I, I, can, I can make things happen. I can, I can move mountains with my words and my power. We probably wouldn't say that, but we certainly live our lives like we are in control. And Peter's saying, listen, God is in control. Stop fighting it. Stop rejecting it. Stop avoiding it. God is in control. Humble yourself. Receive that truth that he's the one with the mighty hand. Now obviously this applies to God in general because over everything God is in control. But contextually he's talking about suffering. In the midst of suffering, submit yourselves to that mighty hand of God. So what he's saying is as you are going through that present day suffering, don't rail against it. Don't fight against Against it. Receive it as what it is. What did he say it is? It's the true grace of God. Receive it. See, we've already seen Peter explicitly state that suffering is part of God's will. I'm going to read it again just in case we forgot it in chapter 4, verse 19. Peter says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will. And trust your soul to a faithful creator while doing good. All things, including our suffering, falls under the sovereign and purpose will of God. And so Peter's putting on his pastor hat. And he's saying, listen, humble yourselves. Submit yourselves to God's purposeful plan. Your suffering is not meaningless. It's not, uh, it's not your punishment. It's actually for your redemption. So humble yourselves. Receive what he's doing. Now, this is tough for us because we usually spend our time, money, and energy to try to mitigate suffering out of our life. And instead, Peter's saying, I want you to receive it as something good. See, we think if we can get to a certain financial threshold, then we'll be exempt from suffering. If I can just get to this level, then, then, then I won't have to go through these, 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 these kinds of sufferings. Or if I can build up enough walls around myself and my family, then I'll be able to keep them safe from suffering. But instead, Peter is challenging our gut level instincts. And he's saying, humbly embrace that suffering. The, one, the suffering you're experiencing is actually coming from the sovereign and mighty hand of God. And it's for your good. And then he also tells us, the reason we can do that is because you know by the promises of God that at the proper time when God's work is finished, he will exalt us. So he's not only the one who... who, who uh, has orchestrated and written suffering into the plan of our lives, but he's also the one that will see it through to completion so that it results in your exaltation. God's plan for our present suffering never culminates in our humiliation, but in our exaltation. So you may not know how it results in your exaltation, but you can be sure that it does. Because God's word just told you it does. And you can believe in that. And so you're like, but I can't see how this... There's just no way that this could lead to my exaltation. Well, that's because you're not sovereign. You're not omniscient. You're not omnipotent. You should expect that you can't figure it out. Right? There's lots of things we don't know. I have no idea what quantum physics even is. Right? There's lots of things. We could just go around the room saying, I have no idea how to do that, what that is, how that works. So why should it surprise us that something going on in our life right now, we can't see how ultimately in the broad scheme of the the course of my life, it leads to my exaltation. Of course we can't figure that out. But a sovereign, omniscient, omnipotent, all loving God certainly can. In other words, there is no safer place for you to be than under the mighty hand of God no safer place. That's where you're actually, truly, and completely safe. Isn't that a word you've heard a lot of in these last couple of years? I mean, even the, the guy at Costco who puts a marker on my receipt, I don't even know why they do that. But as I'm leaving, he says, be safe. I'm like, be, are you going to help me be safe? Like, how, it, Everywhere you go, it's be safe. Be safe out there. And it's like, there's, there's, there's thousands of things that could harm me, you know? And, and yet the only one who can truly offer me real, genuine, everlasting safety is the Lord under his mighty hand. And so Peter's saying, receive that. Not just as a difficult truth to embrace, but like a warm blanket on a cold New England night. There's no safer place to be than under the sovereign and mighty hand of God. So, what does that look like? Well, that's where, where verse 7 comes into play. And Peter says, Cast your anxieties and cares on him. Now, this verb for casting is a strong one. It means to propel something, to throw something from one place to another. And so, in other words, Peter's saying, Pick up everything that's weighing you down and just fling them on to God's back. He will carry them. And here's the encouragement Why should you? Take your cares and anxieties and place them on God. And he says, because he cares for you. Now, you would think it says, place them on his back. Give him your cares and concerns because he's strong enough to hold them. His back's big enough to carry all of the world's problems. And and that's true. He is big enough. He is strong enough. He is powerful enough, right, to put all of our burdens on him. But that's not the encouragement, is it? It's because he cares for you. God will carry them, not because he's omnipotent and has the power to do so, but because he's delighted to do so. He cares for you. He loves you. So when we put all that together, Peter's saying, listen, accept this reality. There's some truths you just have to accept, that suffering is a part of this life. And somehow it's written into God's sovereign and purposeful will that is for your good and ultimately God will use it to exalt you and as you experience the anxiety and the stress and the strain that comes from going through suffering, he says bring that to the Lord because he loves you. I love this from Paul David Tripp. He says perhaps our problem is our definition and expectation of God's care. You see God's care comes in a variety of packages. His care is not always a cool drink and a soft pillow. God's care is not always relief from circumstances and a release from trouble. And friends, I'm telling you, that's often what we think God's care is. If God cared about me, he would remove this from me. And then when it's not removed, we think, well, maybe God doesn't care for me. But that's not always God's care. He goes on. There are many moments in our lives when the very thing that causes us to worry and wonder about God's care is his care. He knows that trouble will reveal our hearts or display his glory. Often, trouble is a tool of care in the hands of the one who knows best what we need. He cares, therefore, make sure your definition of his care is not too narrow. I think 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6 and 7 is meant to expand our definition of God's care. See, peace isn't found by picking apart the moments of your life and wondering whether or not God loves you. Look at me. He loves you. He does. He's told you right here in his word. He's just invited you to take all of your stress and strain and give it to him because he cares for you. And if you needed more proof than that, he sent his son Jesus to live for us and die for us to defeat sin and death for us. He told us that, that Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that by his wounds we would be healed. So that's proof. It's eternal proof. And so Peter says bring every anxious thought to him. When you lie awake at night and, you're, and your mind is just racing... He's saying bring those thoughts to him in prayer. When you have stressful impulses that lead you towards self-destructive habits or that lead you to lashing out. He's saying take all those impulses and bring them to him. Live in utter dependence on him. Just like we have to depend on daily bread for daily sustenance. Depend on the Lord, depend on him like that. Drink deep of his presence like, thirst, like a thirst-quenching glass of water. In the same way when you walk out of here today because it's so wicked high you're going to be thirsty, the way that you would, you would gravitate, move towards a drink of water. He's saying move towards him like that. Come to him the way a child instinctively in the dark finds their way to their parents' room in the middle of the night when they've woken from a bad dream. Like that child, come to him because you believe in your heart there's no safer place than to be near to him to be under the shelter and protection of the mighty hand of god seven mile what anxieties do you need to bring to him this morning the question isn't do you have anxieties you need to bring to him we're all anxious people some of us are just better at hiding it So what anxieties do you need to bring to him this morning? If you're taking notes, just jot them down. Write them down so you don't forget them. Whisper them. If you're not writing them down, whisper them in your heart. When we come to the Lord and respond in song, prayerfully give them to him. Some of the the best prayer times I ever have are, are in the middle of singing worship to him. How do we stand firm in the true grace of God? Peter tells us we have a humble reliance on God. Second, we pursue a vigilant resistance. Verse 8, Peter says, Be sober minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Here, Peter gives us three commands as it relates to our adversary, the devil. Now, when it comes to that word, the devil, we need to remember the wise words of C.S. Lewis, who said, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. Here's the first one. The first is to disbelieve in their existence. So some of you are in that camp. You're like, devil, none. I don't believe in that. And then there's this other camp over here. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. See, some people live like the spiritual realm is either unreal or at least less real than the physical world, that everything must have a tangible, scientific, materialistic explanation. This is the tendency to, to deny that we live in a world that is both comprised of a spiritual realm and a physical realm. And I think if we're honest, that's, that's, that's the New England culture we live in. And Peter or, or Paul teaches against this false thinking. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11 to 12, he says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Then he tells us the kind of world we live in. He says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, and here it is, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So friends, the devil is real. You can have a Ph.D., And believe the devil is real at the same time. Those aren't incompatible. Okay? Demons are real. There is a spiritual world going on all around us, regardless of our ability to see it, sense it, understand it. And then Lewis told us, but there's another camp. At the same time, there are some people who have an excessive and unhealthy interest in the spiritual realm. So anytime something bad happens, it's like, must have been a demon. I was on the way to church and I got a flat tire. Must have been the old demon who did it. Maybe it did. Maybe it didn't. But we can't blame everything on demons. Because when we have an unhealthy and excessive fascination with or interest in the demonic, we become distracted from the mission of God. It distracts us from the reality of day-to-day living. So Peter reminds us have a balance. Listen, don't forget there's a spiritual realm. Don't forget that the enemy or an adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion because he hates you and wants to see you destroyed. And he gives us this word picture of a lion on the prowl. So we, we think about a lion looking for an easy meal to devour, right? He's saying don't forget that. But at the same time, Don't live with like a a, a necklace of garlic around your neck and praying incantations all the time. Find a balance. And then he gives us some practical advice on how to resist the temptations of the enemy. Look what he says. Be sober-minded, be watchful, resist him. That word sober-minded means to be self-controlled if you think about the opposite of that if you're not sober-minded you're drunk right when you're drunk what are you you're uncontrolled so he's saying be self-controlled be clear-minded it's a mental state that's free from confusion and driving passions now think about that if you're driven by passion you're not thinking clearly all you're thinking about is that singular focus of whatever is driving you right And if you're confused about what is true because you're just so focused on that driving passion, then you become an easy enemy for, or an easy target for the enemy. And then he says, be watchful. This means to be alert and ready. In other words, he's saying, don't get picked off because you were inattentive to your life. Going back to that analogy of the lions, lions typically, and I know this because I've watched National Geographic. Lions typically attack the margins of the herd. They don't go into the herd. They pick off the margins. Who's on the margin? The weak and the slow and the vulnerable, right? And so he's saying, think about that. In the Christian herd, that would be those who are uncontrolled and inattentive. If, you are, if your life is uncontrolled, if you're not giving attention to your life, Congratulate, you've just put yourself on the outside of the herd, and now you are a prime target for the schemes of the enemy. And so instead of that, Peter says, be vigilant, be attentive. Don't be driven by passion, be driven by purpose. Be attentive to the personal disciplines of word and prayer in your life. You know, we make the Christian life really complicated, and it's not, it's really simple. You know, the hardest thing I do is try to figure out new ways of saying, be a people of word and prayer. Because if I just get up here every week and say, all right, got a sermon for you. Be a people of word and prayer. All right, let's pray. You'd be like, hey, you're not doing your work. But when it all comes down to it, that's the best application I can give you. That's what it means to be attentive to your life. Be dedicated to word and prayer. And then this is remarkable. Remarkable. Peter says, resist him. You know what that implies? That you can. If it was impossible for you to resist the enemy, wouldn't it be really unkind for Peter to say, Do the impossible, resist him? But because it is possible, Peter says, Resist him. Now, how does Peter know that? Well, Peter knows that the power of Satan's hold over believers has been broken on the cross. He knows that. He knows that the power of sin and death has been broken. You're no longer a slave. The shackles that once bound you where you could not resist him, if you are in Christ, guess what? You're free. So you can resist him. You can resist the temptation and schemes of the adversary. Juan Sanchez in his commentary on 1 Peter writes this, The devil is real, and we must be ready for his attacks. But our Lord has confronted him and defeated him once and for all. Therefore... He who is in us is greater than he who prowls around. The devil is a real foe, but he's a defeated foe. He is a real threat, but he's a limited threat. He is on a leash, and he can only do what God permits him to do. And God has granted us the grace to resist him. In the same way that the Lord uses suffering for his redemptive purposes... He uses the enemy for his redemptive purposes. He is on a leash only long enough to hang himself. So how do we resist the devil? Well, we take what he said earlier about being self-controlled and attentive to the rhythms of grace in your life. And then Peter adds one more thing. He says, be firm in your faith. That means being saturated with the gospel, with good theology, so that you recognize lies for what they are. You know what the Greek word for the devil actually means? It, the, the word is diablos. We just transliterate that as devil. It means one who slanders. That's what the devil is. He's one who slanders. He's the chief slanderer. He's the chief liar. And he's been slandering since the garden. And he continues to this day. He's a one trick pony. That's all he does is He lies. So if you're committed and firm in the truth, guess what? You immediately recognize his lies. He's a deceiver. He's a liar. He slanders the Lord and he tempts us to think God is holding out on you, that he's not acting in your best interest, that there's something better out there for you to to pursue and all of it is lies. But when you're saturated with the truth of the gospel, when you are firm in your faith, You see those lies for what they are. You're able to recognize his deceptions, see them as just ploys meant for your destruction. Friends, the devil hates you. He hates you. And he wants nothing more than to see you destroyed. And he will use every deceptive, manipulative lie at his disposal to see you deny Christ and walk away from him. And the older I get in my faith, the more I see people who I would have considered and called brother and sister in Christ deny him and turn and walk away because they've believed the lies of the enemy. We must stand firm in our faith. Friends, take heart. Peter also tells us, you don't suffer alone. Peter reminds us of the benefits of Christian community he says, but don't lose heart. Why? You've got brothers and sisters in the world who are in the same battle. You're not alone. You have brothers and sisters across time and geography right here in greater Boston who are presently resisting him with the same grace and the same faith that you have access to as well. Think about that. Right now, you have brothers and sisters in Christ right here in greater Boston. You've got brothers and sisters in Christ in Dallas, Texas, who are all fighting the same battle and what's more take heart because at the end of the day the enemy is only dressed up like a lion one day he will be seen for the liar and imposter that he is in C.S. Lewis's classic series the chronicles of Narnia the last book is called the last battle a lot of people don't get to that one they just do the lion witch and the wardrobe but I, I encourage you read all of them And in that book, the last one, the last battle, there's an ape named Shift who tries to steal all the earthly glory for himself, and he finds an old donkey named Puzzle. And at one point in the story, Shift, he he gets a hold of an old lion's skin, and he's like, oh, I got an idea. Let's sew it into a costume, and I can get Donkey because he's a four-legged creature, and we can dress him up and parade the donkey like a lion, and we can dress him up like Aslan, and that, that'll be good for us. And he's going to use them in, 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 uh, to, to, to glory rob. And after some cutting and sewing, Shift gets Puzzle into this lion's skin. And here's what C.S. Lewis says. He says, No one who's ever seen a real lion would have been taken in for a moment. But if someone had never seen a lion, looked at Puzzle, In the lion's skin, he might just mistake him for a lion if he didn't come too close, and if the light was not so good, and if Puzzle did not let out a bray and did not make any noise with his hoofs. See, Puzzle and Shift try to pull off the impossible. They try to make a donkey appear like a lion. And no one in this room would ever be confused by a donkey for a lion. And friends, Satan is trying to do the exact same thing. He's trying to steal glory from the one true king and he's a donkey parading as a lion. But we serve the true lion, the lion of Judah. And he who is in you is greater than he who prowls around as an imposter. How do we stand firm in the true grace of God? First, we have a humble reliance on Him. And second, we have a vigilant resistance. And finally, we we trust in a promised restoration. Look at me at verse 10. After you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. I know these words. If you are in a current season of suffering, I know hearing these words that you, that you are suffering for just a little while, they're hard to hear. Because when we're suffering, that's all we can feel, it's all we can see, and it doesn't feel like a little while. I know our lives, our 100 years, don't feel like a little while. But what Peter is doing is he's looking through the halls of history at eternity... And he's saying, compared to eternity, this, this, this bit of time we have is but a little while. It's like what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are seen, unseen are eternal. See, Peter and Paul are in tight alignment here. What they're saying is our present sufferings are light and momentary. It's it's just a little while compared to eternity and the eternal glory that is to come in Christ. And so Peter and Paul are pointing us to future grace, the promised restoration that is to come. Because at the proper time, this God of all grace is going to, what did he say? Restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That word for restore is the same word that in other places in the New Testament is translated as mend. It's used in the Gospels. When Peter uh, first approached the first disciples, what were they? They were fishermen. And what were they doing? Mending their nets. So Peter takes a fishing term. And he says in the same way that we used to go out and fish and we'd come back, our nets would be tangled and torn. They'd be worn out from the grind of being cast out in the water. Peter's saying, we're like those nets. We get torn. We get worn out. We get tangled up in the grind of being cast out into the everyday world. And Peter says, the the God himself, the the God of all grace will mend you. Think about that. In the same way that that the the fishermen have to be up close and personal, you got to look through the whole net, finding where the, the, the net has been torn and frayed, God himself will give you the same kind of attention as he mends you, restores you back to life. That's what God will do to you and me. He will look over us. He'll find the broken and torn pieces and he will bring them back to life. He will make us whole again. And not only that, Peter tells us he's going to confirm us. This is a word that means to make something stable and strong. In other words, God will remove all the instability and make you stable. And he will strengthen and establish us. These are architectural terms. They refer to be, uh, building buildings with the kind of permanence that stand the test of time. Friends, this is our promised redemption. God himself will attend to us. He will make us whole. He will stand us up. He will strengthen us and establish us with a kind of permanence that goes on into eternity. That's the living hope that Peter says we've been born into in chapter one. And then I love how he ends. After telling us about our promised redemption, he says, To Christ be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Think about the people who are first reading this. They live under the reality of the Roman Empire. The glory of Rome was was uh, w- w- was meant to be eternal. Caesar is Lord, and Rome is eternal. No one thought there'd ever be a day when the mighty, great, and powerful Rome would ever be defeated. And you can get on a plane right now, fly to Rome, and visit its rubble. Peter says Rome is not eternal. Christ is Lord. His kingdom is forever and ever. And we need to hear that too. I know some of us are looking at the stock market right now and going, oh boy. My 401k took a hit. But friends, our hope is not in the stock market. Some of us look at our country and see the turmoil and wonder what's next. I get anxious thinking about the next election cycle. But that's not where our hope is. Our hope is not in our civil liberties. It's not in our security, friends. It's not in anything this world has to offer. Peter tells you, this is your hope. This is the true grace that Jesus himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Why? Because his dominion is forever and ever. There isn't anything in this life, seen or unseen, that can compete with his dominion. That's why Paul can say we are more than conquerors. That's why neither death nor life nor angels nor demons nor present things or future things nor height nor depth. Anything else in all creation can separate you from the love and promised restoration that is yours in Christ Jesus. Because his dominion is forever. Nothing will get in his way. This is not theoretical, friends. This is As everyday practical as it gets. In seasons of suffering, as you mourn and grieve, as you struggle and strain, the only thing you might have to cling to is this promised restoration that is yours in Christ. Stand firm in the true grace of God as you trust in the promised restoration that is to come. Friends, we live east of Eden. We are not home. We are chosen exiles. We are elect sojourners and we will suffer. And over time, our bodies will keep the score. This whole letter has been to tell you, but do not lose hope. That's what this whole letter is about. It's a sojourner's guide to hope. And at the end of the day, we can stand firm. And the true grace of God, as we embrace a humble reliance on God. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. And at the proper time, he will exalt you. Pursue a vigilant resistance. Stand firm. Resist him. Be sober-minded. Be alert. And trust in your promised restoration. And so, seven mile, we can stand firm. Knowing that though the world threatens to take everything away from us, it can never take away our true identity and inheritance. We can stand firm knowing that we've been born again to a living hope, guaranteed through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Stand firm knowing that not one ounce of suffering will be wasted and it will all be used to refine and purify your faith. Stand firm knowing that as we suffer, we share in the sufferings of Christ, we're bonded to him, and Jesus is near to the broken hearted. Stand firm knowing that at the proper time, when God's work of redemption is finished, he will exalt us, restore us, confirm us, strengthen us, and establish us. Let's pray.